Alright, this is Chris, John, and Billy from Modesky. Martin and Wood. You're listening to WCBN FM. In Arbor. Yeah. <laughs> afternoon. You've got living writers on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel. And today on the program, um, not only do we have the, the lead-in intro by the Bee Gees, but we're so lucky to have Lori Moore um, joining us via phone. Lori, are you there? Yes. Hi, T. I'm here. Hi. Listening, listening to the Bee Gees. I we're... actually like that song. <laughs> so, so do I. I think it was. it's one of those things like... Uh, you, you probably don't, I don't know, I don't advertise it that much, but uh, I'm not, I'm not afraid to admit it. <laughs> like in the Bee Gees? Well, I saw the Bee Gees go through two different incarnations, you know. I, when I was a kid, they were around in the 60s, and they did songs like It's Only Words, and, you know, it was before they all had orthodontia. And then they came <laughs> back again in the 80s, and they all had had their teeth reworked, and they were doing disco. I don't I even... This is the late 70s. And so they had a different, a different kind of career altogether, you know, 15 years later. It's true. I don't even think those... I mean, those weren't even their real teeth anymore, were they, really? Well, I think they were. I think they had braces. <laughs> you have to look at the pictures of them in the 60s. You can see it's, it, they were very, you know, pre-orthodontia. But... What a strange way to start an interview. It's true. Oh, no. it's true. Well, and it's, I didn't know you were going to play the beaches, you see, so now I'm free associating. Well, which is perfect. Um, and, and the reason... Um that that I played that one song, Lori, was because in one of your past interviews, I think like um, to prepare for this was I was reading, you know, like maybe um, Salon and and uh, uh, Believer, and you know, so the, at some point you you brought up the Bee Gees and how you you know music is important to you, Lori Moore, <laughs> and and you're not even um, you don't disown any of it. No, as you go clearly along. not. <laughs> I should, shouldn't I? But I'm, I'm, I'm unembarrassed. I'm unembarrassed. It's one of the many things I already like about you, <laughs> um, Lori. Before we go any further, or, or maybe we can continue on about the BJ's, uh, BGs again in a minute. But I'll just read the short biography in the back of your your latest novel, A Gate at the Stairs, um, just so just so everyone knows like a short bit about you, and then we'll fill in some more things if that's all right. <laughs> That's perfectly fine. Lori Moore is the author of the story collections Birds of America, Like Life, and Self-Help, and the novels Who Will Run the Frog Hospital and Anagrams. 
Her work has won honors from the Lannan Foundation and the American Academy of Arts and Letters, as well as the Irish Times International Prize for Fiction, the Ree Award for the short story, and the Penn Malamud Award. She is a professor of English at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. And so, so you're actually in Central Time, aren't you, Lori? I'm on Central Time, and I know because I once commuted to the University of Michigan to teach a class every week. I know you guys are on Eastern Time. We are. When when was that, Lori? What part of your biography, when did that fall? When did I teach at the University of Michigan? Yes. I was a visiting professor there, a visiting writer. I can't remember what it was called. Um, the fall of 96, could it be? Oh. The fall of 97? Oh. I, something like that. Oh, so and and so you spent a term here in Michigan. I didn't I didn't well, know I that. I wish commuted. Isn't that crazy? Well, yeah. I guess you did start off by saying that. <laughs> I got on a plane here and and would go, you know, go east um, to Detroit and then take a limo up and teach a class and then come back the next day. Oh wow! It's pretty wild. Yeah, it kind of exciting. To, well, it seems like from um, from. Madison, you used to, is this true, you used to also commute back to New York City to get a fix of, of the city as well? I have done that. I have done that for a while in the late 80s. Maybe it was the mid-80s. I can't keep them straight. <laughs> right. If <laughs> only all blurring together. We have all to... the 80s are now just congealed. Um, I kept an apartment in a, a horrible little apartment in Hell's Kitchen and then also taught here in Madison for a semester, and I would go back and live in New York for eight months. Then later, much later, I think it was the spring of 2000, I commuted to New York and taught at Baruch College for a semester. And that was that was pre-9/11, so you could kind of whiz in and whiz out of these airports. It was possible. Yeah, if you had it down to a science, like I, I imagine you did. I, I, I thought I did. Yeah, I thought I did. But now that, I, you know, you couldn't do it in the same way now. Not now. Yes. And and did it, um, <laughs> not that you, I'm sure you had other reasons for commuting and, and whizzing around. It wasn't just to inform like what you were writing about at the moment. But sometimes is it easier to, to actually write about a place when you're not in it or... Um, I don't know. Well, the teaching the te- teaching situation was just clear. You know, I hate to say it, it was just about money. That's right. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it was just about being able to make more money. I was supporting a family here, and you know, I just I could make more money by jumping on a plane than I could by teaching here. Um, so there was that bare bones thing. But um, but can you write about a place? By being there or by being away from it, better is that the question? I think I think sometimes you can because your your energies are are summoned to sort of conjure it because it's not there. If it's all, if you're already surrounded by a place, you 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 sometimes take it for granted and and forget what's interesting about it. But when you're when you're away from it, you can conjure it a little. That's true, and you know which which parts to pull on because those right. are the parts that are pulling on your memory. Or... Right, exactly. You have your own little editor, which is your memory. <laughs> right. And we don't always, we're not always aware of it. We think it's the whole truth. 
Right. <laughs> well, well, Lori, will you will you tell us um, uh, a little bit about uh, the latest novel, uh, A Gate at the Stairs? Because you've been you've actually been on book tour, and and I don't know, are you still in the midst of it and taking time out to to talk with us? Or I'm really kind of you know winding down a little bit. You know, I I feel yeah. like. The tour is a little bit like a horse without a rider. It's sort of going on by itself a little bit, but I have a few more things to do, and then it's then it's pretty much done. Um, the book is a novel that's set in the Midwest, and it's it's the first book I've written that's entirely set in the Midwest and is narrated by a Midwesterner from the very first page to the very end. It's the first time I've done that, and I wanted to do that. I wanted to have a Midwestern book. Why is that, Lori? Because I hadn't yet done that, and I'd been—I'd really been here, despite the commuting, despite the off and onness of things. I really have been in Wisconsin for 25 years. Yes. So I really—and there are a lot of interesting things about this place and the city, and um, there are—you know—there were a number of things I thought were were sort of contradictions to common perceptions of the Midwest and just things that I was interested in about it, and I wanted to get it all into a novel, or not, or at least a lot of it into a novel. And so it's narrated by uh, a young woman named Tassie Kelchin, and she's, she's looking back from a slightly indeterminate time, probably, you know, her late 20s, um, looking back to when she was 20, mm. and the year she turned 21 in college, and all the things that happened to her during that year, which is the year, which is basically the year two, um, 2002, and she gets a job with a family as a nanny, and the story sort of begins there with her getting that job, and it follows her adventures with that family, and her adventures at school, and then her adventures with her her family um, back home on the family farm. Now, adventurous is not <laughs> exactly the right word, but it's, whatever, it's so, we'll just use it. It's so lighthearted. Yeah. Well, she adventures, does. The Adventures of Tassie Kelton. <laughs> now, there's a title for yeah. you, Lori. That probably would have been better. I think my editor would have been more pleased with that title <laughs> well, than Gated the Stairs, but oh well. <laughs> well, there is well there is a moped in it, you know, so there's some adventuring right. there. Oh, there's lots you know? of adventures, but, you know, there's more misadventures probably. And and the sadness. I guess we'll get to some of that maybe a little bit later. <laughs> with the, um, and, and also, Lori, um, before we take a short break, um, when we come back, would you would you mind reading uh, perhaps like a, a piece, a couple of pages of of the book for us so sure. we could get a sense of, you know, Tassie's voice in there and um, uh, because it's written in the first person right. as, as well. Um, maybe uh, what about the the a gate at the stairs? Like, why did you say the your publisher would sort of wish that maybe you had picked a different title or? Oh. We had a long discussion about the the title, my editor and I, and I and I knew it was not a glamorous title, and it and it was sort of plain and and nothing glitzy about it, and and my editor thought nothing memorable about it, and um, but I said I know I know it's not it's it's not the shiniest thing on the planet, but it really is. What the, what the book needs to be called because of the way it figures as a motif in the 
in the book, and it's, uh, I don't know if I want to, you want to talk about well, that? Yes, or? well, because, because I keep thinking, I can't help but thinking about Mary Emma, you know, and like, and, and like a way of, like a, I don't know. Like, like a baby gate. Yes. Yeah, it is it, that. Yes. It is many things. It's a baby gate. It's, um, there's an actual gate on the, on the farm that she um, opens with her brother, and they go down these, this sort of terraced path that's like a staircase. There's, mm. a, there's a gate she unlatches just before she goes to an interview and goes down some stairs to, you know, for this job interview at the beginning of the book. Yes. And there's Heaven's Gate, and she yes. writes about, you know, gates at, at the stairway or opening to heaven, you know, in these songs that she writes. With and, her base. And metaphorically, <laughs> it's, it's basically about a barrier to ascension. You know, the thing that blocks, both protects, uh, from one side it protects, but from another side it, it also blocks an ascension to something more ideal than where you are. Um, oh, yeah. So that's really why I needed to call it that, even though it wasn't you know, it wasn't as jazzy as the adventures of Daffy Kelchin. <laughs> <laughs> well, well defended. I don't see how anyone could argue with you, actually. Oh, well, people do. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we'll try and stir it up a little bit more when we come back, Lori. Oh, then. Do that. <laughs> okay. Okay, we'll take a short break. Um, you're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Lori Moore, her novel, A Gate at the Stairs. We'll be back. Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Lori Moore, her latest novel, A Gate at the Stairs. Um, and fading into the background, um, we have a little <laughs> a little funny girl. Were you able to hear that, Lori? Oh, it's just one of my favorites. <laughs> you're, you're playing all my favorite songs. So, right, I'm afraid, I mean, I, that whole soundtrack is just, I just love it. When did it, did it ever, um, you know how music can sometimes save you or, or it means like the moment, um, of time, you right. know, is that, does that have any, um, well, I was 12 oh, when it came out, so it was perfect for a 12 year old. So or I might've been 11. It was 68. The Broadway show was 66, 67 and the film was 68, 69, something like that. So. I was about 11 or 12. It's Don't Rain On My Parade is the perfect song for a 12-year-old, let me tell you. <laughs> and I memorized all the words when I was 12. And could you perform it, too? Were you? Uh, not in front of anyone. But I, I would do little Barbara Streisand mimicries and stuff to amuse people. But, you know, little snippets, but that's it. Uh, do you want to bring one out now? No, no, no. no we, mustn't, we mustn't go there. <laughs> 
but but you know you're luring me with these songs. I'm getting distracted. So <laughs> it's it's all part of the plan. Yeah, right? I guess. <laughs> just imagine it. Very if... devious and effective plan. <laughs> Um, well, well, Lori, and um, enough about my deviousness. <laughs> but would would you mind reading a piece uh, of the novel for us? Sure. Okay. Um, should I just read from the beginning? Yeah, that would that would be great. Okay. All right. This is this is the very first page, and I'll read over onto the second page a little bit. The cold came late that fall, and the songbirds were caught off guard. By the time the snow and wind began in earnest, too many had been suckered into staying, and instead of flying south, instead of already having flown south, they were huddled in people's yards, their feathers puffed for some modicum of warmth. I was looking for a job. I was a student and needed babysitting work, and so I would walk from interview to interview in these attractive but wintry neighborhoods, the eerie multitudes of robins pecking at the frozen ground, dun gray and stricken, though what bird in the best of circumstances does not look a little stricken, until at last, late in my search, at the end of a week, startlingly, the birds had disappeared. I did not want to think about what had happened to them, or rather, that is an expression of politeness, a false promise of delicacy, for in fact I wondered about them all the time, imagining them dead in stunning heaps in some killing cornfield outside of town, or dropped from the sky in twos and threes for miles down along the Illinois state line. I was looking in December for work that would be begin at the start of the January term. I'd finished my exams and was answering ads from the student job board ones for child care provider. I liked children. I did. Or rather, I liked them okay. They were sometimes interesting. I admired their stamina and candor. And I was good with them in that I could make funny faces at the babies and with the older children, teach them card tricks and speak in the theatrically sarcastic tones that disarmed and enthralled them. But I was not especially skilled at minding children for long spells. I grew bored perhaps like my own mother. After I spent too much time playing their games, my mind grew peckish and longed to lose itself in some book I had in my backpack. I was ever hopeful of early bedtimes and long naps. I had come from Delacrosse Central from a small farm on the old Perryville Road to this university town of Troy, the Athens of the Midwest, as if from a cave like the priest child of a Colombian tribe I'd read of in cultural anthropology, a boy made mystical by being kept in the dark for the bulk of his childhood and allowed only stories, no experience of the outside world. Once brought out into light, he would be in a perpetual, holy condition of bedazzlement and wonder. No story would ever have been equal to the thing itself. And so it was with me. Nothing had really prepared me. Not the college piggy bank in the dining room, the savings bonds from my grandparents, or the used set of world book encyclopedias with their beautiful color charts of international wheat production and photographs of presidential birthplaces. The flat green world of my parents' hogless, horseless farm. Its dullness, its flies, its quiet ripped open by the fumes and whining of machinery, twisted away and left me with a brilliant city life of books and films and witty friends. Someone had turned on the lights. Someone had led me out of the cave, 
of Perryville Road. My brain was on fire with Chaucer, Sylvia Plath, Simone de Beauvoir. Twice a week, a young professor named Sad, dressed in jeans and a tie, stood before a lecture hall of stunned farm kids like me and spoke thrillingly of Henry James's masturbation of the comma. I was riveted. I had never before seen a man wear jeans with a tie. Well, and there. Thank you, Lori. Thank you. <laughs> that was great. I had to lean far away from the mic during this. So many. Um, so was was the first sentence like was this like a lucky sentence like for starting this novel and this um this this beginning and and I'm and I'm sorry because I actually I do I do love birds so I I can't just walk away from the birds because of birds of America right and, um, but, right yeah so so was I mean, this somebody, like a lucky somebody thing? Somebody once said that you always begin a begin a book by saying a farewell to the the book you wrote previously. Really? And so there there it all is. It's a farewell to the to birds of America. But I had I had the. I had the beginning pretty early on. I mean, there was there were a couple of false stars, but once I, I mean, that sentence in that paragraph, and and in fact, the whole passage that I just read, I've had for years and years. Really? Yeah, oh yeah. It was the rest of it that took a long time. <laughs> so. And and so and when you had that passage, it's like uh, you knew immediately this was going. This was a longer project. Like that, there was um, Tassie had. Um, a, a larger, like a larger story to tell. Right. I knew. I knew that this was a novel, and it would be. This would be the narrative voice of it, and that it would be looking back, and that it would include, you know, pieces of her childhood that are were further back in time, but but primarily that it would include this year in college, um, and everything that happened during it which was a curious year in our national climate as well because it was the year between um, 9-11 and the Iraq War. Yes. And the book does end with a student protest starting up against the build-up to the war in Iraq. And she participates in them at the end. And, it's, and, so, and that was very intentional, picking that, that year um, yeah. as a year of transformation, not only for the what was happening in the nation, but to show it in this young woman as well? Well, I think, you know, it, the book didn't, you know, when I first wrote the first page, I didn't know precisely what year it was going to take place in. But once I had that down I, and, and thought about it, I realized that, that how interesting and curious that year was as a moment in our country and also how the events, the personal events of the novel, are are reflective of of those national events and and um, the kind of passivity and and acquiescence that a couple of the characters um, participate in to to their own tragedy is is you know reflective of what the entire country, in a sense, was doing as well. Yes, I almost don't know. Like, are there? I guess because um, I don't. Some and there's some parts of it that I'm worried about talking um, about um, in 
uh, the trajectory of the plot, Laurie, because I don't know. Right, we don't um, want to rule. Right. Well, it's, novels are very hard to talk about. It's so much easier to talk about nonfiction, isn't it? Because you're not giving anything away. Um, but, yeah, there are things. We can speak generally. Okay. Okay. <laughs> It'll be a dance where I'll be following your lead then. Because okay. just as you were saying that, I was like, okay, th- maybe there's... Um, well, well, I guess a few of the things that we can we can say about it is that that Tassie finds a family or or a couple that need her um, because they're adopting right. a child, right? And um, right, and Tassie, you know, finds that the husband is a little absent, and so she's going right. to she's even going on these to these meetings with the birth mothers. Um, with Sarah Brink, her employer. And that is really a very unlikely scenario, but I had to fudge it because it was necessary for her cooperation with me as the author of the book. <laughs> she, had, she's, she was going to be the narrator, so I wanted these scenes, so she had to be there. So I had to place her in a slightly unlikely position for her to be in, but whatever. There, you know, sometimes you just have to do that as a, as a fiction writer to, in order to get... Um, to get the readers To there. get the story. Right, you, have yeah. to, you have to push the, the narrator into little corners and places where they hear and see and, and witness things that they might, you know, might not really in real life be likely to, to hear or see. So she was just cooperating with me as the author by calling on these, on these birth mother adventures. Hence the fictional part, right? right. Of the narrative well, it's all always. Fictional, but that, yes. that, that's the strain of the, of the apparatus showing, I think. But whatever. But in a way, it also, I would say that it seemed um, believable because of of Edwards, you know, really non-present so much of the time. So it almost just seemed kind of, um, you know, you you would think, oh, oh dear. But you even have her as a character thinking, what am I supposed to be doing here? What is my, what is my role, my, my performance? Right. Um, Right. But that's, so, so the first person, that's like some of the travails of that would be right. muscling them into these places. Right, right. So she she does travel with Sarah, and, and then the second time she, she travels with Sarah again, and then Edward arrives late. So there, there are times where they're, the three of them are together, too, like a little family. It's important to note that she's, she's being employed by a couple who is very different from her own parents. Yes. But they're the exact same age. And so she feels a little bit, I suppose, in an unconscious way, a little bit like, you know, maybe, you know, th- her, their daughter or, you know, some possible family member that, that um, I don't know, that she, could, that she could join this family sort of easily since these two are her parents' age. But they're very different from her parents. And and it and but this idea of family that was important because of how her family is also working in another um, in another level of this this novel. Right, she's she's kind of you know like so many kids who go to college, and I shouldn't call her a kid. She's 
she's 20. I mean, she's the same age as Jane Eyre. She's the same age as the governess and Turn of the Screw. I mean, she's your classic Gothic governess age. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, but she's like so many young people. She's rejecting, you know, where she came from in order to sort of align herself with something new and more you know, sophisticated or or interesting or complicated. And so she would necessarily kind of turn her back on her old hometown and 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 look instead at this at this slightly more glamorous family or what she thinks of as more glamorous. Well, we'll come back for more um, for more for more glamorous notes, okay? <laughs> well, with Lori Moore, um, you've got living writers. Um, Lori Moore is talking with us today. Her latest novel, A Gate at the Stairs. Um, we'll be right back. Hello, if you're just joining us, you've got Living Writers on WCBN, FM, Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, so happy to have Lori Moore um, joining us via phone. <laughs> um, Lori, are you there? Are you? I am, but oh, Neil is still playing here. We can hear, we can hear some harmonica, right? <laughs> There's a harmonica. And actually, I, I think James Taylor and Linda Ronsa do backup vocals on that song. I think. Ah, and and um, Brian Delaney, um, our engineer, he's giving the thumbs up that indeed you are right, Lori, <laughs> that that they yeah. are. They're the backing vocals there. Yeah. Ah, it was. It's a good song for. It's a, um, a good song, and it's from the album Harvest, which does make a, a little appearance in my novel. It, towards the end. Towards the end, you remember. <laughs> that's, it's that's the why, menu. Yes, exactly. That's why that's why it's being played, Lori. That's why it's there. Okay. Well you didn't warn me. So I didn't know. It's remember it's part of the devious plan. Right. <laughs> um but um but but Lori, um, I wanted to uh, talk with you, ask you a little bit about because music is so um, well <laughs> nice. I've spoken with you for half an hour, and now I'm going to tell you what's important to you, right? But um, it seems like music is Im- important to you. Um, and uh, how how is music able to be present like those? You know, with with poems and and or if like you know, Tassie even has song lyrics that you know because she plays the bass um, in in the novel. Um, and so, you know, as a release, music's important to her, too. Um, 
how how is there like a lyrical presence in the novel? Because your your writing your writing is, I would say, maybe I should just <laughs> maybe I should tell you how there's no. You can oh, say dear. whatever you want. <laughs> this is too much caffeine talking now. I think. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think there's music probably in all of my books, but and and there's and sometimes there are musicians, and this is the first time I've had the main character of an entire novel be a musician. She is a musician. She's and um, she's not in a band. Though I have this fantasy at the end that there's a page that I forgot to write where she actually joins a band. You know? It so, seems so like that, she that, needs that then, too. She that would, would be, need that, and it would yeah. give it a slightly more upbeat ending. She does, when she has that job in the coffee shop at the very end, she takes a little little flyer from an, uh, some, from a little poster that is, that is advertising for a bass player. And so, because obviously someone's been called up to the war. Yes. But she takes yes. the phone number, so the, the idea is that perhaps she will be in this band. The idea that I have in my mind that's not there in the book, that she will be the bass player finally in this band, instead of just riffing with her roommate and, you know, just keeping it all private the way she has. Now, I don't play the bass, so I had to do a little research and, and inventing there. But... Um, but I, she she is a musician and she writes and I don't know if she's a good musician but I'm hoping she gets into that band. <laughs> it seems like she must be though in some ways because she's she you know she she's even playing when she's at home over the holidays and um, you can see that she's gone she goes to it a lot she she's goes enthusiastic to the there are a lot of enthusiastic amateurs and she's that's probably what she is an enthusiastic amateur and there's nothing wrong with that. Yes, I think it's and um, it's I think at the end, too, it was, it was like it's it's interesting. There's that moment with Edward, too. So I think that's what I became fixated on instead of the hopefulness that might have been present in the <laughs> her joining the band. How is it that um, uh, how often is it that like these characters like when you're imagining like how how come you you did stop then instead of saying something more um Oh, I guess, God, you could always say more, couldn't you? What a ridiculous... You can always... I stopped, I stopped at the moment where, you know, in a sense where Jane Eyre stops, mm. but with the, with the flip, you know, where it reverses what Jane Eyre... I mean, Jane Eyre marries her Edward. Yes. Um, who, is, who is not all that attractive either. Not all that appealing a character, I don't think, Mr. Rochester. <laughs> is. But, um, but... Less choices than Tassie has, perhaps. Fewer, you know? right. Um, <laughs> fewer, yeah. But I guess I thought because she had taken that little phone number that that, was, that would be indication enough. But, you know, mm. writers always have this highly inflamed sense of event. They think their characters do one tiny thing and everybody will notice and everyone will say, aha, that means she's going to join a band. Everything will be fine. And so it just seemed to already be there in my mm. mind, but I had, so I subsequently had to tell people, like, no, she really, it, everything's going to be okay with her because she's going to join that band. And I, I think it's, um, but it, it shows, like, what a success you had with making, um, everyone really feel f for this the young woman and um 
and and there yeah there are moments that yeah, everyone will just have to read a gate at the stairs to know where there's some moments of pure where i i went in some of the the interviews you've done about this Lori, where you talk about the difficulty of writing the book and you alluded to that at the beginning of the program where you said well you you, you know you have that that first passage that you read to us um but then it's taken years um to build other parts of this book um and and that is sometimes it's an element of life like whatever all is required of us and right. uh, you know um but but what could you speak to like the writing part that that was um also part of that well it was it was somewhat intermittent um you know i had a, i have a lot to do in terms of you know being a working single mom but once you know once I was really immersed in the book and, and could return to it at any point, really, because I felt there was a living creature there to, to, to greet me, you know, every time I came back to it. Once I had that going, um, I felt I was just keeping company with her, and I, re- I really did like her, um, and I did like keeping company with her, and I, I was reluctant to let her go because I felt... Perhaps if I hung on to the book for another year, I could make things a little different and improve the book for her in a way. You know, like oh. the characters themselves become your your muse in a way because you want them to be in the best story and then the most suited suited story for them. Um, and you want, in a way, you're serving them. And um, and I, I almost wanted to hang on for another year and see if I could make it the most perfect book possible. But I, at the end, I thought I'm not going to, I'm not going to be able to improve it that much more. This is just going to have to be what it is, you know. And that's the way with with ending any book. You just at some point you just have to say, it's not perfect, but this is just what it is, and you have to move on, and you have to say farewell to the characters. With short stories, it's a little easier because you often pick characters that you don't want to spend that much time with. So you keep it short. You're like, fare thee well. I'll never see you again. That's good. You've become very irritating. But with a novel, you have to spend time with characters, a long time with them. So they have to be people you're really involved with and and are attached to. And so that was the case for me in this book. Um, So I, I, I... I was reluctant to say goodbye. Doesn't that sound crazy? No, no, <laughs> no you lived, you did, you lived with her for for I some years, her, didn't right. you? And um, so, and 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 just and stop me if it's like going. You don't want to talk about like um, this part of the story, but like then, because then I mean, then you get to that part where you do you have this compassion and this this being with the the character but then is it just the idea of like the part where you feel responsible to whatever is can be honest about like because you don't want something like this like with um robert um what tassie has to experience with her brother um so then how how did you um (laughs) how did you let that happen in a way you know it's um that was probably one of the inevitable things in the book that was just probably going to be there from the beginning or from, you know, once I set the, set the book in, in the year 2002, I, I, I think, um, well, it's 2001, 
December 2001 to December 2002. Once I had done that, I think it was just inevitable that that was going to happen with Robert. This, the thing that I realized once I had finished this novel, and I'm not primarily a novelist, but I have three novels, um, and all of them have this one thing in common, which my stories don't have, but they all have the main character who is enchanted and bedazzled by something in her life that is sort of false and sort of on un, sort of unpromising and in the first novel completely imaginary um, and as a result she turns her back on a sibling who needs her they all have that in common i didn't realize that till i till i got to the very end of this i thought oh no this has <laughs> yes. this has the same thing going on in it um what and what it probably has i don't know it's probably somewhere I don't know. It might have to do with Carmen, <laughs> the story of Carmen. It might have to do with Mill on the Floss. It might have to do with my <laughs> own life. I mean, I don't know, but it's something I, I guess I find engaging and sort of heartbreaking at an unconscious level because it wasn't, it wasn't a deliberate, you know, I, I didn't line these novels up to have those things in common. No. They have that in common, but but they do. And for some, this and this, what um, this situation you're describing, like how um, Tassie then um, was bedazzled and then turned turned her back um, from Robert's need, is actually the part that, I mean, even though there's um, other things that events that happen and that are driving this book, it was actually this that even felt. Um, I felt the most in, in some way, because maybe it's something about, um, the closeness of what these siblings had. Like maybe it's like another way of yourself, like some part of yourself that you also turn your back on. Or, right. Right. I think, I think siblings are close, very close when they're young, even if they, you know, whatever troubles are there. And there's a scene early on in the novel where she goes back home for Christmas, and she and Robert do take off on their own and have a walk and a talk, and 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 she reminisces of their, you know, about their many walks and talks together. You know, they are close, but in turning her back on her hometown and trying to move forward into the world, she ends up sort of pushing away from him too, because he's part of that, and and it. it is met with an unfortunate result. Because at any other and any other year, it might have been very different. Right. Because those, those things are right. they're ebbs and and right. you, it doesn't have to necessarily be like a loss. It doesn't necessarily. Well, it, I think it almost invariably is a loss. I think as adult siblings. I mean, I don't know. I shouldn't make oh. generalizations, but I think I think siblings have to form a different relationship once they're adults. Mm. The, the closeness, the easy day-to-day -day stuff when you're young isn't there. You have to sort of make it different when you're older. Don't you agree? I guess I do. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then for a moment I just thought, is, are we, I almost feel like uh, we're, it's like the psychology. We're doing the psychology hour now, right? right. Well, we'll have to, but I'm, I'm so enjoying it rather than when I'm writing. Well, but if, we'll, the only, if there are a lot of only children listening, they're prob they've probably fallen asleep. 
Right, right. So many up. people with brothers and sisters who are listening at this point. <laughs> so, well, we'll see what we can do for the only child when we come back then. Okay. <laughs> Shall we? Um, so we'll take a, a very short break, um, and then we'll be back. Today on the program, Lori Moore on Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be back. If you're just joining us this afternoon, you've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, Lori Moore, her latest novel, A Gate at the Stairs. Um, and Lori, maybe we could talk um, another time. Talk about uh, Eric Satie. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I thought to myself, there's no Eric Satie in my novel, but then of course there is, I forgot. There is a little bit. Well, the, There's a mention. The, you know, the thing is, is that I asked Brian to pick piano. And so Brian, oh. the engineer, picked this one in oh. particular. Oh. Is it? Well, who's, who's, that, who's playing? I can't tell. Brian, who is it? Brian's going to come pipe on now, I think. They're kind of pounding. That was uh, Michael Legrand. Oh. The French pianist. Oh. But but the so I didn't mean yeah I know you're like now you you were expecting <laughs> more from me and from Brian at that moment. Um, but I, 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 I guess I think I'm on a on some kind of game show. It is. Now. It's like this is your life. This is your writing life, Lori Moore. Yeah. <laughs> if we're gonna do that justice, we're gonna have to continue the conversation another time because mm. we've only got like 12 minutes left. Oh, okay. Say say it isn't so. <laughs> but um but I just thought because um your one of your first loves was piano, wasn't it? Like it, 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 oh it, yeah, well yeah. I mean, my my dad was a pianist, and you know, so we grew, you know, we grew up in a household where there was always the piano being played by somebody, and um, and I took lessons for a long time and played and played into right on into graduate school really, and then I, I where I rented a practice room at Cornell, but I. I realized I was just spending too much time there in the practice room and I wasn't getting writing done. And so, and I, and I thought, I've got to switch keyboards, you know, I've got to go bring all this ecstasy that I'm experiencing on this keyboard. I have to bring it to the, bring it to the typewriter, what was then a typewriter. And uh, that was the end of the piano for me. Even though I still have one here in the house, I have a little, a little, upright but um i don't play that much anymore i wonder hey that's i think you know i think you could allow yourself that again lori too <laughs> well again it would it would it, it's in competition it's in it's competition because with, it's the same place it, or it, is it coming from the same place or it's some connection it's the idea that it's your it's your it's your 
brain, it's your ear, and it's your hand. Mm. And then it's a little bit of your heart. Oh. And so that's all that's, those are all the same connections you have when you're riding. And so you only have so much energy for that every day. And if you're bringing it to the piano, that's less, you know, less you have for the, for the keyboard at the desk. For the, yes. Um, the, um, it's, I, this seems like a good, and with that piano, the, the, the sound of that was so somber compared to um, staying alive at the, at the beginning. I, um, I know, I've noticed. You, I don't know what your outgoing music is going to be now. I'm, a, I'm just, a real dirge, let me tell I you. I can't wait to hear. <laughs> um, but, but Lori, that, that's like, maybe it's a good, maybe it's, it'll push me to say like how, because you write about, these like the loss and 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 sorrow um so so well even you know and you say even you kind of made jokes about your your, you know like the short stories some of the characters aren't you know aren't people you'd want to necessarily spend a lifetime with or so but but they're still like uh, you still are uh, like allowing them to um be in the world and um i don't know suffer nobly in some i don't how oh. how do you um <laughs> in a couple of minutes how do you do that <laughs> i don't know if they're if they're there's suffering nobly i that would be great if they were i think i think i'm also allowing them to to suffer gracelessly as well because you know, we all suffer in all different ways, and it's not always nobly. That's true. And it's sometimes, you know, horribly and awkwardly and selfishly. And and, and I, I, I'm trying to get all of that down without it being too repellent. You know, <laughs> you know, but I think you do. And it was my mistake using that word noble, because what I meant is it's that... but. Not that they're doing it nobly, like uh, in some, like they deserve an award or so, but but more like that it's shown with like the com- the compassion is there for the awkwardness and the and the and the, the absurdity or the horribleness of the suffering and this or the selfishness, like that makes it, um, like there's an understanding there at least on the part of the writer, so that you feel that as a reader. Oh well, thank you. I hope that's true. I hope that's true. Um, that that I think that is what what writers hope for to sort of broaden our sympathies and to bring bring some kind of you know compassion to things that perhaps you know are not necessarily given much compassion or even are deserving of much, but you know, but little you know, but here they are. They just are what they are. And. And and along with that, like I think some of the ways then, I mean, I feel in a way that you've been asked many times to be the spokesmodel for humor. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, Uh. And and so, but I I guess that's the, I I mean, just the short time speaking with you, it seems to be just something that's naturally always going on anyway. So it would be um, unnatural for it not to be on the, on the, in your writing as well. Um, well, that's that's what I think. I think everybody is 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 pretty funny, um, <laughs> and I think the world is pretty funny. And and you'd you'd be lying if you didn't include all that in your in the world of your fiction. So I, you know, I just I just feel I'm trying to get it down 
you know, what's already there. But, uh, yeah, because it, people are, you know, like if we're if we ever really thought about it or recorded some of the 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 thoughts that there are they are quirky or they are making strange connections oh, all the yeah. time, aren't they? Oh yeah, and anytime you get together with your friends, you know, how long does it take before some, somebody says something funny? Probably four minutes, right? That's true. Four minutes in, someone said something funny, and someone's laughing. <laughs> That's. That's four minutes tops. Usually it's 40 seconds. I do think it's that quickly. Someone says something funny. Even as they're stomping their, the mud off their boots before they've gotten into the house, they'll say something. I do, people are very funny. It's part of the generosity, I think, of the human spirit that they, they try to be amusing for each other. <laughs> for each other and for themselves. For themselves, but also for one yeah, another, it is. right? I think I mean, it really is that reaching out. Yeah, absolutely. It's a kind of, you know, it's a kind of commitment to the community and to the society to try to, you know, just make someone smile a little bit here and there. You know, I, I, I should talk after having written such a sad, <laughs> sad novel. <laughs> there are parts. humor in it. You're right. There. It does. But... <laughs> It's true. And I feel like, so everyone will have to just actually, re, you know, because we don't want to, to, to give away like some of the sadnesses, but there, there are like these moments of, of, of really great. Can we, I mean, can we talk about the hawk a little bit? The, um, um, Tassie sure. dressing up as the hawk. Cause that's one of those moments where it's like sad and funny and absurd yeah, it's um as a non dadaist farmer, I guess I should say. <laughs> I, that's I see it as an absurdity. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I I was reading a little bit about how you had to sort of you know, whack the greens to get the mice out. And I thought wouldn't it be interesting to have her do that? You know, to have that be her summer job. And then before I knew it I had I had her father dressing her up in this former kite outfit that she had sort of entered this summer job with a with a spirit of theater and costume and and that she would take to these rows of lettuce and whack the mice out with the tips of the, the wings that were fastened to her arms now they're fa- there it's all made from a kite there is something in wisconsin called uh kites on ice Oh. And there are fantastic kites here um, in the wintertime during that festival. So I had that in mind, that somehow she'd be using that old kite as her summer costume. And, of course, there, it, there, there's an allusion to Icarus there, too, that she makes. Yes. Um, which is what a college student would think of, I think. And and the um and also that, again, with the bird, being a bird, just uh-huh. and that level mm-hmm. again. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. You know, you just you follow you follow these little you know little bursts of inspiration, and you see if if they're interesting enough to to put on the page and keep going with. By the time she's riding her her Suzuki with the bird outfit on, <laughs> at that point you realize she might not be <laughs> in such a good. Place. Yes, it's a little bit part of her, you know, re- trying to recover from from the loss of you know the job and and Mary Emma and all of that that's happened to her. 
um, just recovering a little bit from that. And so she's a little bit, she's in a weird place um, at that moment. Um, and then it kind of keeps going. But then by the end of the year, after she's suffered even more, yeah. she comes back to school and she's, she's, she's going to survive and she's going to be in that band. And she is. Yes. <laughs> yes. So. so it's hopeful. And how will, so what do you think, Lori, about, because you said that the beginning, like you, that someone had said, well, you always at the beginning of your book, you say farewell to the book before. Mm-hmm. Have, like, is it something that you've already begun that farewell? Or, or? No, I don't, <laughs> I don't know that I'm actually doing that. In the, I mean, I have started something, but I don't see the farewellness yet in it to this book. So I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. Maybe, maybe it has yet to emerge. Um, but I'm only at the very beginning of something else. Oh, does it take you some, well, we'll have to check in maybe later about that then, yeah. some future date, um, and, and talk about your short stories too, because that, um, yeah, but this hour has gotten away. <laughs> yeah, I think it's over. It's almost, it's, I think it's, bless you, Brian Barnes, got a bit of a cold. It is almost over. He's and pointing at his watch and he's saying, <laughs> saying we've got to do the Richie Haven song. <laughs> is that what he's doing? <laughs> Actually, now, now I'm not even sure what's next. Brian's oh. got a surprise up his sleeve okay. for us. <laughs> um, Lori, thank you so much oh, well, thank for you being for on having the program. Me. It's been great talking to you. Uh, it's been so great. And if you, Lori, if you hang on for just a moment, I'll say goodbye properly off the air as well. Okay. <laughs> okay. Right. Um, thank you very much for listening. Thank you, Lori Moore, for being here today on the program. Um, thanks to Brian Delaney, you know, muscling through a cold um, to engineer for us. Um, Thanks, Ann Arbor, uh, and wherever you're listening. Maybe you're in Florida or Chicago or Seattle. I'm T. Hetzel. You've been listening to Lori Moore, her latest, A Gate at the Stairs. Until next time.
Welcome into the Daily Sports Report. No time for the intro today, guys. We just have too much to talk about across the glass. I'm joined by Jeff Chan and Dalton Pataki. And guys, I skipped the intro music just because, as I said, there's a lot I want to get to today. And with only 30 minutes, we're going to have to rush fairly quickly into it. First off, the duo from Deflategate outside of Tom Brady, the equipment manager and the locker room attendant, they're both going to be reinstated this week. So we have an incident where... I think there's no doubt at this point that there was cheating. Whether it was intentional or not, a rule was broken. And at this point, it feels like there was no justice. Tom Brady reinstated, didn't miss a single game. And now the two other men responsible, unclear who's really to blame and who knew what was going on that was wrong. But at the end of the day, someone knew something was going wrong, or at least someone did something that's against NFL rules, whether they knew it or not. And there was no justice. Dalton, I'll start with you. What do you make of how this has all been handled by Roger Goodell in the NFL? Goodell's been under fire before, and now we see an instance where he has an opportunity, and I think rightfully so, to put his foot down where there would be very few who wouldn't be in support of, you know, a swift and heavy suspension. And everything that he did seems to have been completely for naught. Well, let me first off state, the rule's a dumb rule. 